Hello and welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a dialogue about astropreneurship and how space technology and exploration are transforming our solar system. Coming up on 60 Seconds in Space, there's a U.S. company called NDB that plans to manufacture and provide nano-diamond batteries, which are tiny recycled nuclear waste with layers of graphite-purified carbon-14 and 12 diamonds. These nano-diamond battery cells would have energy density lasting a decade to as much as 28,000 years without the need for recharging. NDB's products could be considerably cheaper than current lithium-ion batteries and plans to be on the market by 2022. In a new study, astrophysicists suggest launching carbon foam spacecraft could be faster and cheaper than any rocket without the need for any giant multi-billion dollar laser array. 15,000 times lighter than aluminum, a hollow aerographic sphere one micron thick could carry 1 to 100 grams of payload and would cost $1,000. After release in space, sunlight could take it to Mars within weeks, or Proxima Centauri, the closest star system, in 185 years. Our guest today is Bill Stone. He's the founder and CEO at Stone Aerospace, a U.S. aerospace engineering firm dedicated to the exploration and commercialization of of new frontiers beyond Earth. Greetings, Bill. Awesome to have you on here. Uh, Yeah, pleasure to be here. Where are you at in, in this world? <laughs> we're, we're in Austin, Texas. Um, I've been here since uh, 2005. Uh, we uh, moved our company here uh, then. We've been here for 15 years since. Before that, I was uh, back in the D.C. area. I worked for a, a national lab there for 24 years, then uh, founded my own company, and uh, we started doing work for uh, NASA in uh, uh, the area of uh, planetary robotics. Uh, system development. Very exciting. I was wondering, would you be able to uh, describe Stone Aerospace in uh, present day and um, as it would be in 2050? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, if I had a crystal ball, I'd be investing in stock. Huh? Um, yeah, right now uh, we've got uh, uh, 20 full timers uh, here at the lab in Austin. Uh, and probably that many again uh, as uh, remote uh, consultants. Um, All of them are uh, what you might call subject matter experts. Uh, The general focus of what we work on um, has to do with what you might call field robotics, um, and it extends from underwater to ground to uh, aerial drones to spacecraft and and reentry vehicles. Um, the, The concepts behind these things uh, when you get down to it, turn out to be uh, relatively similar. So a lot of our code base, for example, uh, for controlling robotic systems is transferable between these these different domains. So if you you build a hovering um, six degree of freedom underwater vehicle that can pitch roll yaw and, and translate that same type of operational uh, behavior, if you will, is translatable to an aerial drone. Uh, that is a highly maneuverable uh, unit, or to a or to an orbiting spacecraft. Um, so our 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 general mode of operation uh, is that we tend to choose our projects very carefully that we work on that uh, involve 
cutting edge robotics where we're, we're, we're pushing the envelope of what has been done and then uh, using these things in uh, remote uh, hostile environments. So we have been all over the globe. We have been on high altitude peaks. We have been under glaciers. We have been uh, in subterranean uh, unexplored uh, sites. We have been in polar regions, both north and south. Uh, I think uh, collectively, uh, most of our people have spent uh, about a year uh, in Antarctica over the last 15 years. Uh, some of them more. Uh, our, our field ops leader, I think, has spent two years in Antarctica. So uh, a lot of our equipment has been dedicated towards uh, advancing concepts for outer planet um, robotic exploration. So these would be uh, missions to things like Europa, Enceladus, Titan. Um, and, uh, and, and in that set, uh, most of our focus has been on uh, the question of how do you get through the ice caps uh, of these icy moons uh, that are out there. Europa is, is the one that uh, most people think of, uh, but others are like them. Uh, in fact, now they have a whole uh, program that is uh, about to be initiated at NASA uh, in uh, ocean worlds. So there's about seven of them right now that have been identified um, that are, are likely targets to be of, of great interest. And of course, the idea here is that if you can get through the ice cap to the liquid ocean, uh, you have the possibility of uh, uh, detecting uh, life that uh, did not come from terrestrial origins because you have all of the pieces, the building blocks, if you will, for uh, life to evolve on these alternative worlds. Um, really, it's, it's basically uh, water, carbon, uh, an electron donor, and an electron uh, acceptor. And you know, when you get right down to it, it's mineralogy, uh, it's energy, uh, and in the case of Europa and some other ones, uh, you have gravitational tidal uh, pulling on the silicate core of the, of the planet. Uh, generating heat, uh, which could give rise to hydrothermal vents. And these kinds of things are known uh, on Earth to give rise to unusual uh, uh, aphotic uh, life forms. Uh, nobody's thinking in terms of macro life right now. It's more like single and multicellular uh, things like bacteria uh, and smaller things that we might be able to pick up through uh, chemistry um, measurements and then look at them in more sophisticated uh, analyses through fluorescent spectroscopy, uh, up through holographic microscopes and, and DNA sequencers, all of which we're now working with to put on uh, some of these uh, systems that are, are being tested here in analog environments on Earth. Incredible. So, so Europa is uh, one of the smallest of the 79 moons orbiting Jupiter um, with, with the red scars on um, the ice crust from from the changing tides um, with an ice shell we believe to be around 15 to 25 kilometers thick and um, a floating um, that would be floating on an ocean around 60 to 150 kilometers um, deep how do you plan to get uh, through the uh, 20 or so kilometers of, of ice right so that's that's what we call the cryobot problem and the answer to that is that there are uh, a number of different technologies that are being looked at right now. Um, the uh, 
kind of the flagship program that is uh, supporting this research at, uh, at NASA headquarters called uh, the Sesame Project. And um, there's probably, oh, I don't know, four or five different labs uh, that are working on uh, different concepts uh, for how to do it. And I can kind of group them roughly uh, as, as follows. Um, the original ideas for sending a probe through ice uh, are pretty old, going all the way back to the early uh, 1960s uh, with a, uh, a scientist uh, named Philberth uh, who developed a, uh, an electrically heated, uh, you know, resistively heated uh, system that uh, heated the nose of a, uh, a cylinder and uh, they were using uh, gasoline generators on the surface and the vehicle uh, paid out a, a wire uh, behind it as it descended because when you're on uh, very cold ice, what happens is the, the, uh, the ice will uh, freeze, or the water will freeze behind the vehicle, uh, closing the hole as you descend down. So basically, after a short distance, you're, you're descending in a bubble. And uh, so this, uh, this class of probe, if you will, has been uh, uh, given several different names. Uh, some people call it a passive uh, thermal probe. Uh, some people call it a hot penny probe. It's probably the most uh, visual description that you can think of, or you just imagine taking a, a penny with a pair of pliers and heating in a blowtorch and then setting it on ice. And you notice, hey, it, it melts into the ice, right? Um, well, it turns out that that's, uh, that's not the most efficient uh, way to, to get through ice. They actually use uh, that kind of technology in a slightly different format. They have a, a heated uh, glycol liquid that runs through a, a, a copper tube in the shape of a cone, uh, and they use it to get through the uh, unconsolidated ice down in Antarctica for uh, various uh, scientific uh, missions that want to get ice cores or they want to place some instrument down in the ice. Probably the most famous of those is the uh, ice cube uh, neutrino array down at the South Pole. They put in over 100 uh, holes that were 2,600 meters uh, deep. And so the first 80 meters, they used this passive probe. And then when they got done with that, they switched to a much more efficient uh, means of cutting through ice. And, and uh, that particular example, they use a... Uh, a five megawatt uh, diesel-fired generator system that um, heats water, and then they have a high-pressure series of pumps uh, that jet it uh, through a nozzle that is weighted that they just simply lower into the ice off a big reel. And uh, it has been demonstrated quantitatively that the energy involved to move through ice with that approach is about two times better than, than a hot penny approach. Um, so, uh, those are, those are the kind of ways that you, you could do it. The traditional kind of way of getting uh, into anything rock or ice is you could drill it and you could take coring, uh, systems down there. The problem with that is you, you need drill stems, you need back uh, material to keep the hole from, uh, closing shut on you and, and things of that nature. So, uh, among all those three are bits and pieces of ideas that you might possibly, uh, use on Europa. There's a fourth one. Uh, that is much more novel, uh, and it was uh, discovered at our lab uh, about four years ago uh, in which a um, very specific wavelength laser uh, can be focused um, ahead of the vehicle such that you deposit that optical energy into the ice and it will cause the ice to change phase. 
Um, and so if you look at it uh, to, to see a movie of it, it looks like a Star Wars lightsaber uh, in which there is this conical beam that is extending out beyond the vehicle and it's simply converting the ice into liquid and the vehicle is falling into the hole. Um, if we could do that on Europa, it would be the fastest way by far. It's about three times more efficient uh, than the, um, the hot penny approach. So that's the, that's the technologies that are being uh, looked at right now. Um, so when you start thinking about, all right, what are you really dealing with uh, on Europa? There's actually a number of different uh, phases uh, and one idea may work for one, uh, it might not work for some of the others. So to give you an idea here, when you're on the surface, uh, and this is called the starting problem, uh, you have hard vacuum and ice, which is sitting at around 100 Kelvin uh, temperature. It is hard as steel. And if you try to heat it, uh, it will sublimate, it'll vaporize. It passes through the liquid phase before it does anything. So it switches directly from a solid to a gas. Um, and we have actually uh, uh, built a chamber. It's, it's the first uh, chamber that anybody has built so far to actually test cryobutts under real Europa conditions. So this chamber has a, um, uh, a slug of ice, uh, cylindrical, about a meter in diameter and two and a half, three meters uh, deep uh, that is contained within a uh, three layer stainless uh, Dewar system uh, that's evacuated and then the inner layer is filled with uh, liquid nitrogen and that freezes the cylinder of ice down to one, actually 83 Kelvin is what we can get to with that uh, using liquid nitrogen. And so then we pull a vacuum uh, on the, uh, uh, the preamble stage to the chamber where you can put in uh, your melt probes and other types of things that you want to uh, test in there and then you see whether they can get through the ice. So uh, that first problem there uh, is a tough one, uh, but we've managed to show that you can uh, start using both lasers as well as the uh, passive uh, type probe. You can't do the hot water jetting uh, until you've actually sealed a hole below the ice uh, and generated uh, vapor pressure, which allows liquid water to form. But at that point, uh, the idea is uh, to test this closed cycle hot water drill system that we've developed uh, called THOR. Uh, and there's a follow-on to that uh, called Prometheus, which is a miniaturized uh, uh, version that's uh, scaled down to, uh, to do uh, what we would call uh, uh, continuous descent uh, type work in, in brittle cryogenic ice. Um, so there's that. Uh, there is a complication or a possible complication. Those uh, uh, orange layers that you see on the surface of Europa are oxidized. Uh, material that's probably been converted by uh, radiation uh, from the Jovian magnetosphere accelerating protons and electrons uh, uh, into the surface of, uh, of Europa. And so uh, whether those are simply um, uh, dissolved salts, uh, whether they are things like uh, sulfuric acid um, or other uh, things, we don't know yet. Nobody really knows. Uh, hydrates and other types of salts could have uh, boiled up uh, from the ocean uh, if uh, cracking had occurred uh, and then refrozen out, uh, leaving things that were uh, perhaps uh, concentrated salts and other types of things in those ices. So the question has come up, 
of you know what will happen to your uh, your penetrator, your cryobot if it hits these kind of layers. And it's kind of a guessing game because nobody really knows, and and there is no real way to know until you get there with a lander, um, and and try to go, uh, you know, a meter or two into that material uh, before we're going to have definitive proof of of what it is. So we can speculate uh, ahead of time and then try to build a system that is going to be able to handle as much as we can think. So right now. Uh, in our lab, the Prometheus program uh, is working with Jet Propulsion Laboratories uh, to generate what we think are possible uh, types of uh, what we would call dirty ice. Uh, so these are uh, salts and uh, high, uh, sulfuric acid and other things like that in various concentrations that are feasible uh, to exist on Europa. And then we're going to test uh, to see whether we can uh, get the vehicles through. So. The, the hard part is actually getting started, uh, going from the lander and getting into the ice. Once you get through, now you're into the second phase, uh, which is called brittle ice cruise uh, or brittle ice transit. And so you're dealing again still with roughly 100 Kelvin uh, ice, but you can generate liquid water around the vehicle. It turns out uh, that ice is a pretty good insulator. So once you've created the sphere of water, uh, around the vehicle, uh, you can utilize that for things like hot water jetting. The hot water jetting beautifully will cut through dirty ice and other impurities. This is a known uh, capability of these things, both used in uh, Iceland, Greenland, and Antarctica. So we, we know that those things work uh, once we get there. So uh, we do that for about a kilometer to two kilometers, and then you're transitioning into what we would call uh, phase three, which is ductile ice transit. So now you're more like uh, Antarctic ice. This would be like uh, going into a subglacial lake in Antarctica where you've got 4,000 meters of ice over a subglacial lake. Um, the temperature regime in that domain, that four kilometers Antarctica, is going to be pretty identical to what you'll see on Europa for the final four kilometers before you break through the ocean. So we can simulate that really well in Antarctica. Um, the first part we have to use chambers for, and right now there's a discussion about the needs for a, uh, a national uh, Europa simulator. Uh, this would be a fairly uh, big facility, uh, probably on the order of uh, 5 to 10 meters in diameter and 20 to 25 meters uh, in height, maybe even a little taller, uh, with a large cylinder of ice in there kept at 100 Kelvin uh, and the top of it in a big vacuum dome where you can put your lander spacecraft in and test full scale. Uh, cryobots uh, going in. So uh, that gets you to the ocean, which is the beginning of what we would call phase four, uh, which is breakthrough. And so it sounds like a simple thing, but you know, so you got this cryobot that's going down. You know, what happens when you suddenly go from a place that has resistance, like melting through ice, to somewhere where you're, you know, if you don't do anything, you're going to free fall. Um, so what that means is that you need to think about a way to come up with a guaranteed uh, vertical motion control system uh, for this cryobot. And in fact, you'll, you'll want that all the way down uh, anyways, because you have to be spooling out communication fiber uh, to uplink the, the data that you're going to be finding to the lander. So you do that, and now you get into the ocean. And uh, the idea on a, an initial uh, mission is to basically spool out uh, that vehicle all the way down uh, through the depth of the ocean until you reach the ocean floor. Um, and that will probably be the limit of 
uh, an initial subsurface uh, mission. Depending on what you find there, um, which would be uh, the characteristics of the ocean, let's say um, the salinity, uh, the temperature variations, uh, current uh, temporal responses and things like that, um, and any other un unusual chemistry that might exist. Of course, uh, such a, a vehicle would also be carrying uh, cameras and a science payload uh, that would be looking uh, for biomarkers within the ice column and certainly once you broke through uh, to the ocean. The, the problem with this is that a cryobot only moves in uh, one dimension. It, it goes up and down and that's it. So it's a 1D uh, mission vehicle. Um, if you want to increase the probability uh, that you find something, then you need to think in terms of what we would call a, uh, a mobility uh, system to carry a, an extended science payload. So basically, uh, the cryobot would repeat the mission to the floor of the ocean, but then it would deploy uh, an autonomous uh, underwater vehicle uh, that would then carry uh, triage instruments that would search for signs of life in an increasing radius uh, out from that vehicle. And the hope uh, in that is that if you increase the radius far enough uh, that you would come across something the likes of a hydrothermal vent uh, with the energy source that would then in theory support uh, cellular uh, evolution and development. So are you with me so far? Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, staying with you. Yeah, uh, it's, um, it sounds like a a lovely journey uh, that, that you and your team are embarking on. So, um, I was wondering um, how would uh, underwater drones uh, interact and, and communicate and potentially uh, support aquatic uh, life on the seafloor of Europa? Yeah, okay. Uh, let, me, let me back up just a little bit here. Um, so everything up until the point where you land uh, on Europa or Enceladus or any of the other ones that, uh, that we choose to go to. You're probably familiar that the, the Dragonfly mission has been approved for uh, Titan. Uh, that's, that's kind of a different game. They're not trying to go under ice. They're doing uh, surface hops uh, and then looking for whatever they can find there. Um, the likelihood of finding life on the surface of Titan is fairly low, uh, but it will be an interesting uh, experiment to, to do what they're doing. Uh, Titan also has a, a subsurface ocean, but it's going to be tougher to get to because there's layers of other things over top of it. But let's go back to Europa for a second. Um, when you cut through ice, you may have remembered there that I mentioned that the ice cube uh, drill in Antarctica used a five megawatt uh, power source, big, big diesel burners heating water, you know, just a water boiler. Um, you have to use a lot of energy to change ice from near cryogenic uh, temperatures, 100 Kelvin uh, frozen uh, ice to liquid that would allow this cryobot transit vehicle to go through. When you work out the numbers to go through 20 kilometers of ice in that temperature regime, you discover that the power uh, that is needed is measured in megawatt days uh, of energy. And so this is the kind of thing that you cannot provide through solar power. You can't provide it through batteries. So you're stuck with nuclear. And it turns out through uh, most of the simulations that we've done, which involve extensive uh, thermal modeling of the cryobot in cryogenic ice, 
Um, and the biggest problem you have is that on Earth, it's easy to melt in front of the vehicle and the vehicle will just slide into that hole. Uh, on Europa uh, and other outer planets, the ice is too cold. So what will happen is the sidewalls of the vehicle will freeze back onto the ice before the vehicle has even transited its own length. And so what you end up having to do is pump energy into the sides of the vehicle uh, in addition to the nose. And it turns out that in much, much colder ice, uh, you end up putting, in fact, more than half of your energy into those sidewall heaters uh, to keep the vehicle uh, moving forward. So the bottom line is you need a minimum uh, for a realistic uh, size cryobot. This is something in the, in the nature of 35 to centimeters, 30, 35 to 40 centimeters in diameter uh, by anywhere from uh, five to eight meters in length. Uh, you need a 50 kilowatt uh, fission nuclear reactor to do this. Uh, there are some uh, who believe that you could get away using radiothermal sources, but uh, the simulations that we have looked at so far show that uh, this, this type of vehicle will, will not work. Uh, it'll, it'll not uh, descend under that type of uh, thermal uh, source, if you will. It's just not hot enough and not dense enough uh, to do what needs to be done to distribute the, load, the thermal uh, load across the vehicle and to jet uh, down, down below the vehicle. Um, there may be variations that could be uh, developed in time uh, and tested in a, a national uh, uh, ocean world simulator, if you will. Uh, but right now it doesn't look so good for that, but it does look very good for a micro fission reactor, uh, which we have designed here uh, with our, our nuclear team. And uh, right now it looks to be roughly about uh, two liters uh, in size, not counting uh, shielding that would be uh, needed to protect the electronics. Uh, but the whole thing ends up being somewhere around uh, 300 kilograms, uh, and it would be sufficient to <clears throat> get the vehicle uh, down through the, uh, the ice and into the ocean. If you get to the stage where you're talking about deploying an AUV, an autonomous underwater vehicle, um, you probably will have a radiothermal source uh, that powers that vehicle. Um, and so it would be something on the order of a uh, uh, MMRTG uh, or smaller uh, plutonium 238 source uh, that will that will run the rover if you will um, now when you talk about um, looking for life and how are you going to interact with it down there uh, and I don't think anybody at NASA headquarters uh, is willing to step out on a limb and say that uh, we're looking for macro life down there or we expect to see macro life in the ocean uh, that would be kind of like the slam dunk. If we, if we dropped into the ocean and turned on the 4K cameras and saw fish, that would be the end game, right? We could just say success, <laughs> let's all go get drunk, right? Uh, the likelihood of that happening is, is pretty, pretty low. Um, and so the, the best way to uh, kind of um, put that into perspective is that uh, we expect what would be called a very low energy uh, environment to exist there even though it's been there for a long, long time. Um, the question is, can things develop in a very low energy environment? What we're thinking is that possibly if there are hydrothermal vents, that might provide sufficient energy for localized uh, colonies of bacteria and microbes uh, to, to grow. Nobody's thinking that there's going to be fish uh, being supported in, in that ecosystem. And so most of our efforts have been focused on, all right, 
if you're going to have a bio load uh, in the ocean uh, of a cellular nature, we need to be able to have sensors that can detect things at very low uh, concentrations. Just to give you an idea, if you were to go down to Antarctica right now and drill a hole through the Ross ice shelf and then stick a, uh, uh, an AUV down through that hole, you would basically be in biological soup, uh, probably on the order of 10,000 plus cells per cubic centimeter uh, of ocean water that you would sample down there. Whereas the current predictions for a place like Europa, we might see 10 uh, or 100 cells per cubic centimeter if, in fact, there is, is life down there. So the instruments uh, have to have a dynamic range of, of sensing so that they can pick up these super low levels uh, of material. And then the question is, all right, uh, how, do you, uh, how do you find them and how do you analyze them? So the way we do it is we have what, what you would call a, uh, a hierarchical uh, life detection science payload uh, that goes with the vehicle. And we've tested these. Uh, in various uh, fashions and, and various pieces of them. Uh, if you really want to read up on this, there's a paper that came out a year or two ago uh, called The Ladder of Life Detection. Uh, and it goes in, in depth into the concepts of how would you uh, have a robot go about uh, looking for life and uh, what would be the tests that you would do at each stage. So just to give you a, a really um, simplified version of that, uh, the first thing you want to do is look for things called biomarkers. Okay, these would be things like amino acid, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, uh, things of that nature uh, that uh, would be not life, but uh, signs of either uh, old decayed life uh, or uh, precursors uh, to life. And so you can detect these things uh, by illumination with uh, a deep ultraviolet uh, light and then uh, run them through a spectrometer uh, and the signatures of those particular uh, species uh, will show up uh, in a uh, spectrometer analysis. So usually they will uh, glow green uh, just in, a, in a, a physical sense and so if you see something that's glowing green the chances are reasonable that it is something of, of biological origin. There are, of course, minerals that, that will glow green under deep ultraviolet light as well, but uh, uh, biological uh, compounds tend to uh, be better diagnosed uh, in, in that type of scenario. So let's suppose that you see something that's, that's glowing green and, uh, and, and you have a positive spectrograph. The next thing you do, you use that as a triage. If it's not glowing green, eh, well, why, why look at it at all? Uh, from that point forward, you might send it to a series of uh, electrochemistry uh, sensors. Uh, you might send it on uh, to a mass spectrometer or a gas chromatograph. Uh, beyond that, if you thought you really had something, you would send it to a 3D holographic microscope uh, or to a, uh, an onboard uh, DNA sequencer. Uh, all of these things are now uh, becoming small enough that they are viable uh, sensors and instruments that can be integrated uh, into uh, something of this uh, size. And so we're starting to uh, incorporate them uh, into the things that we build. For example, the, uh, the Valkyrie uh, cryobot that was tested up in Alaska back in 2014 and 2015 uh, that we built, uh, it had a, a laser power system uh, that was cutting through the ice 
And then as the ice melted, uh, the water was pulled up uh, through a, a deep ultraviolet uh, flow cytometer, spectrometer. Um, and we built an AI algorithm that analyzed that data and trained it against uh, human observations to the point where the vehicle was making better calculations on when to sample water uh, than the humans were. And so these are the kinds of uh, paradigms I think that you'll see over the next uh, 10 years as this uh, technology is, is developed. Right now, uh, NASA is in the uh, process of a 10-year uh, a cycle they call the decadal survey, uh, where they are canvassing the scientific community for priorities, if you will, on uh, what should be the next uh, missions that the, the, certainly this nation you know, should be undertaking. And uh, a lot of that will uh, come forward with uh, recommendations for enhancing uh, life detection uh, instrument systems over the next 10 to 15 years in preparation uh, for uh, a cryobot mission to to Europa. Right now, uh, the Europa Clipper uh, has been approved uh, and will launch sometime in the next couple of years. Uh, that's a flyby mission with ice penetrating radar. Uh, the idea there is that you observe uh, places that are stable, places that are thick, places that are thin, and then from that information, uh, you can determine where you might want to put a lander. Uh, the next piece then is a lightweight lander just to look at what the surface conditions are like uh, in a stable area where you think you can safely land. And then on the basis of those two uh, missions, the next piece would be a, uh, a lander that deploys a cryobot uh, to attempt to get through the ice and see what's in, you know, what, what kind of characteristics there are, are in the ocean. Not necessarily to, uh, to have a high expectation of immediately detecting ice, but uh, certainly of being able to characterize the environment of the ocean. Awesome. Thanks for the, uh, the clarification over here. Um, so if we were to flash forward uh, in time several hundreds of years and uh, Stone Aerospace has uh, hundreds of drones and submarines deep within the celestial bodies of our star system, um, you know, you've, you've found some life forms larger than fish um, and, and uh, Stone Aerospace becomes one of the largest data providers of uh, extraterrestrial life. Um, <laughs> what do you think of this uh, this future reality? In a, uh, I, I don't think that's a realistic future at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, mo most of what we've been working on uh, right now are uh, uh, one-off prototypes, if you will, to try to advance the uh, the technology level. You got you got to understand that um, even the United States of America uh, has a limited amount of money that it can put towards uh, space missions right now. Uh, eventually, in my opinion, if you talk about what's going to happen in 50 years, you're going to see private enterprise eclipse uh, the government in terms of what is being done in space. I think the writing is on the wall uh, right now, and you're going to begin to see it uh, more and more uh, as uh, private enterprise and in particularly uh, you know some of these newer uh, uh, companies that are being run by uh, uh, SpaceX and uh, and Blue Origin are kind of like the the tip of the uh, the spear you're going to see uh, more of that over the next 50 years 
um, we, we would love to be a part of that. Uh, we're, we're trying to be a part of that. Um, but the point of all that is that a, a mission to an outer planet is still going to be a big deal, even in, in 50 years. It's not going to be something that is, uh, you know, you schedule one a week or something like that, or it's the, you know, the Europa shuttle or something like that. Uh, for one thing, you know, people aren't going to go to Europa. It's the radiation environment on the surface is deadly. Five minutes on the surface and uh, an astronaut in a spacesuit would have received a, a lethal dose of radiation. So I think, you know, if, if you're really being optimistic, you know, within 50 years, uh, there might be uh, a mission uh, or two out that direction uh, every couple of years uh, rather than every decade uh, or something like that. All right, you've got me here. If you've got other questions at some point here, you want to go off in a different direction, uh, you feel like we, you know, I didn't answer one question that you asked, you can call me back. Nice. Enjoy, Austin. All right, very good. All right, take care. Hey, really appreciate you guys listening, and go out there and enjoy your day.